Netcasts you love. From people you trust. This is Twit. Bandwidth for Forecast is provided by Cashfly at C A C H E F L Y dot com. On your count. All right, here we go. This episode of Forecast is brought to you by Squarespace.com, the fast and easy way to create a high-quality website or blog. For a free trial and 10% off your new account for six months, go to Squarespace.com and use offer code FORECAST7. What sort of future do you think we're heading for? How will we live as we slip into the 21st century? Welcome to Forecast, episode 82. I'm Tom Merritt. And I'm Scott Johnson. And it is time once again for us to invite two unsuspecting victims onto our show and force them at gunpoint to predict the future. Tom, we are laying the groundwork for what will be the future of humanity on this show. This, this episode is no exception to that rule, and I can't wait for yes. our guests, one of which is Canadian, to tell us all about the future. Today. Yes, okay, it's time now to play Guess Which One of These People is Canadian. <laughs> oh, dear. Uh, joining us is Neil Gorman, president of Scholars TE. Welcome, Neil. Good to have you on the show. It's good to be on the show. And Anthony Marco, uh, host of Discultured, as well as Love Hate Things, Best Episode Ever, Talking is Dead, and TVA. You got it. Uh, and I do, I'm sure I do not do more podcasts than you do, although that was the rumor going around Ottawa the past couple weeks ago. You, you do pretty close. <laughs> <laughs> you know, nothing can stop Anthony Marco. And, of course, TVA probably gave away that Anthony is, uh, is from Canada. Also, the fact that he just said rumor going around Ottawa. <laughs> also gave well away. and you were in ottawa too but when you're an honorary canadian we'll make you honorary that's so nice of you thank you so much yeah. i will uh, hold on for that i will give you 30 dollars oh, no. doesn't have holes sweet in it, though. <laughs> you guys missed it can last I have it, week can tom, i have it in two weeks though <laughs> tom sang your national anthem right here on the show last week not on the air we didn't record it but previous to the to the episode the he sang it yeah. i had wow. to say a little tear came to my eye it was that for day. canada day yeah. Did he do it bilingual? The middle, off français? No. I didn't get. I didn't get quite that authentic. No. You gotta watch out, Tom. Those Canadian dollars are now worth more than your American dollars. I know that's gold in my hands there. Let me yeah. tell you. <laughs> Don't want to just give that stuff away. All right. Well, let's start with a prediction from one of our listeners. Muffins from New York is how this person signed their email. Hey, guys, it's only a matter of time until Generation Y takes over, and when we do, I believe our better understanding of the Internet as part of our daily life will cause us to mold society around it. Many of us avid Internet users have a lot of friends that we've only ever talked to online. I believe that a desire to be able to interact with these friends in real life will cause us to focus on better and faster methods of transportation in America. We are a vast country in size, and we will realize that we need something akin to a nationwide bullet train. Don't you think, Tom, it'll require a monetary or a more substantial monetary reason, though? Because, yes, absolutely, the people you interact with online, you want to meet and interact with in real life, in meet space, as we like to call it. And I really enjoy, like, seeing you at Nerdtacular and other uh, things that we've been at. And it's nice to see people that I have previously only talked to that way. But for that to become a national initiative and for us to see high-speed rail and all sorts of other you know technologies employed to create faster transportation there will need to be more than just hey that dude what i play starcraft with uh is really gonna be awesome to meet him 
you know, and so I'm going to teleport to his town. Actually, teleportation ruins this whole thing anyway, because then we just go anytime we want. But for me to take a high-speed train somewhere, I need, a, I need more of a reason than just I need to see Billy up close. I need some sort of financial incentive. But I, I, I want this to happen because uh, the way I met both of our guests, Neil and Anthony, uh, was at Podcasters Across Borders, or PAB, as they call it now, up in Ottawa. And uh, the two years that I've gone, I've had incredible obstacles thrown in my way in the form of thunderstorms in both cases. One canceled my flight from Chicago to Ottawa, and I had to go to Montreal and drive through the middle of the night. This year, we were able to fly around the thunderstorm, but it looked like... It was going to be touch and go there for we might have to land in Syracuse or something. Uh, so I would be all for high speed, weather resistant, reliable transportation. Which we don't really have right now. So is there one today you'd like to see expanded and made better? Like, is there a rail system you would prefer? What do you what do you hope is the next way for you to get to Pat? Well, let's let's, let's ask Anthony. What what do you think uh, being north of the border? You got you've got different transportation options. Well, not different options, but different uh, systems up there. What help us out? What's what's the best way to get around? Uh, it, because it's such a large country and it's not a country where we have we don't have a lot of major cities to hit along a long road trip. I mean, when you're going across the prairie provinces, so to speak, you may have one city if you're driving every 12 or 14 hours, and that can sometimes get frustrating. So consistent flights are great. Um, we are, however, far more used to, like many of the people in the northern U.S., we are used to driving on snow, and so weather doesn't throw us too much. And I think when you want to meet people in, uh, in, real, t in real life, so to speak, uh, I think you're willing to make those sacrifices. Often, I know that if it took me 12, 14 hours to get to a conference where there was a bunch of people that I want to go to, uh, I am ready to make that sacrifice and take the chance on bad travel if I have to. Although, hearing your horror story last year, that might put me off as well. Well, it's definitely make me think about leaving early. Uh, yeah. Neil, Neil, what about yourself? Uh, do, you, do you think that the pressure of wanting to meet people you've, you've met on the Internet will force us to get things like high-speed trains or faster security lines or something? Uh, no, I don't. Uh, <laughs> I just can't see that being the, the thing that pushes people over the edge. Uh, it would have to be something more significant than that. It would have to be um, more reliable, more economical, uh, and better just in general. I mean, right now, air, air travel is, is pretty good. You know, I mean, I can get wherever I need to get to by airplane. Occasionally, I run into delays, but I think that uh, in the time that I've been taking airplanes places, there's been more times where there have not been delays than times where there have. Uh, and to your, what, the other question you asked about getting around in Canada with it, you know, how their, their money is worth more than ours now, that kind of threw a kink. When I was in Canada before, what I would do is I would just pay people to uh, pull me around in a rickshaw. And now that our money isn't worth as much as theirs, that's, that, they just kind of blow me off. Now you have to pull people around in a rickshaw to pay for your yeah. stay. Pretty much that's how it how it's working, and I don't even have a rickshaw, so I have to like rent then one. To, yeah, that drives very up complicated. Go karts. It's just yeah, it's it's, it's horrible for Americans. We're like second class citizens. I, how, when did that happen? <laughs> <laughs> I, I kid, of course, but I I think I think muffins in the email here is on to something that. There will be more pressure to travel, but I, I, in fact, I, I have to say I agree with Neil. I don't think it'll be the thing that changes stuff. I mean, security lines alone are a, are a dissuading you from traveling, or they, you know, they pad your trip by at least an hour, if not more. So they're 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 slowing things down. Uh, I just, you know, I don't know. 
I don't think there's a uh, I don't think there's a silver bullet train solution. Yeah, and have you guys ever heard about this thing that airlines used to have that used to cost I don't know how much money, but for a, a pretty large amount, you could buy basically um, unlimited airfare to anywhere within the U.S. And it's stuff that you could actually put in your will and then pass it down to, you know, subsequent generations if you wanted to. If there was something like that, maybe for rail travel, that would be interesting. Like a Europass kind of situation. Yeah, yeah. definitely. But we'd I have mean, to build the trains. That's the problem. Yeah, um, I mean, it still also have to go to through security in every single place that you went as well, which would probably be just as problematic. Yeah, true. It just seems like for for air travel to go away as the prominent form of long long distance transportation, it needs to get significantly bad. And it seems like in the last couple of years, at least on the surface, on the media surface of it, it's heading that direction. Everything's delayed, or at least that's what you hear about all the time. Everyone's being delayed. TSA's patting everybody down. It's an ugly experience. It's not fun anymore. There's nothing glamorous about it anymore. It's just a mess. Um, people are losing luggage left and right. So if that just keeps getting worse, what you would hope is something else would come up and become this next awesome thing, and they'll innovate it in some way that will all turn to that, and that will either force you know, the airline industry to figure out a way to make that the best thing ever and, and, and pull the tide the other way, or we'll just go with something new. And I, I secretly hope that that, that that happens. I think that's what motivates uh, nations, companies, and individuals to change their travel habits is when competition rears its head and we see something better. So that'd be great. Let's do that. All right. Done. Send us your Done. predictions, folks. Email forecastpodcast at gmail.com or post it up at our website in a comment on the blog, forecastpodcast.com. Thanks, Muffins, uh, for the thought-provoking email. Let's get into the predicting. Uh, we'll start with short-term predictions, things you think will happen sooner rather than later. And, Anthony, we'll start with you. What is your first prediction, short-term? Okay, well, when I don't do podcasting, my, my other life, my real life is... In the other hour a day that you have... I'm actually a high school teacher, and uh, and so I, I went from an education bent on the short-term prediction, and uh, there this is probably not something that's going to shock anybody, the first part anyway, but I'm predicting that within the next five to ten years, all textbooks will move to electronic, and by doing so, absolutely no money whatsoever will be saved. <laughs> In fact, states, provinces, and countries will purchase set curricula under exclusive agreement with the publishers, and those publishers will also sell interstitial ads within the electronic documents and offer governments a discount for those, these ad-based versions. So ultimately, we are going to have commercialized curriculum, and you won't be able to waver from it, and it's going to cost just as much, if not more, than textbooks. Wow. I love this idea. Well, can I ask, Anthony, I don't mean to pry too much, but what do you teach in high school? My, uh, my qualifications are English and Dramatic Arts. Okay, cool. So... Yeah. English, obviously, that's a that'd be a very effective curriculum. Like you would see the the idea that all textbooks would become electronic and and they would go through these these uh, changes that you're talking about would very very much affect an English department, would it not? And here, I think here's the scary part too is it, many times now, if I wanted to, I could go to Gutenberg and I could get free versions of Shakespeare if I really wanted to. If I had kids that couldn't afford textbooks, but I can imagine that they'll sell a version of a Shakespeare play with the notes required embedded in the back of that textbook and you're going to have to buy that version you won't have a choice in the matter and by doing that it's almost like you're, when you're in university and you have to buy the updated version of the textbook with the professor's notes attached onto the back of it or buy that as an addendum and so ultimately I think they're going to try and lock down 
curriculum, trying to say that it's for the good of all the students, that everyone's learning the same curriculum all over the place. Right now, uh, in Ontario anyway, and I'm thinking in quite a few states, they set out the learning expectations, but many teachers can get there how they wish. Uh, so there is some leeway, but I have the feeling it's going to get locked down pretty quick, and they're going to say it's for the good of a common curriculum or for the good of all students, and they're going to make a heck of a lot of money off doing it. I think the, uh, the prediction that we will go all electronic is right. I think the prediction that textbooks will not become any cheaper is absolutely right because we, we've seen this over and over. Just because the costs go down doesn't mean that the price goes down. Now, what has happened in the music and movie industry, though, could be telling here. I mean, will we have a textbook piracy problem? I think you're definitely going to have textbook piracy. Uh, the question is, how hard are they going to come down on the school boards that do it? I mean, already, and I can't speak to a lot of the individual states. I can speak to the province that I'm in and some of the provinces across Canada. Uh, there are huge fights right now with an organization called CanCopy, or what used to be called CanCopy, which, which regulated how much you could photocopy every single year out of textbooks, and you would have to pay a fee. And they recently wanted to multiply the annual fee that school boards would pay by 10 times the original amount because people are photocopying more and more and more. And I can imagine that as piracy becomes more and more, the cost is going to be borne not only by maybe lawsuits coming up, but also perhaps by people, uh, by, the, by the prices of the actual curriculum itself going up. So in other words, piracy is a problem that's costing us 15% a year. We're going to pass 5 to 10% of that on to you know, the new curriculum that you have to buy next year because that's the cost of doing business. So is there, I assume there's a, an organization or a company or a, a something that, that's writing textbooks all the time and they're getting paid by the school system to write these textbooks. And in order for us to get updated curriculum with, say, I don't know, the latest findings and, uh, you know, some, something about the uh, Pluto not being a real planet, all right? Remember, I remember when that came up, I thought, oh, well, I gotta, better hurry up and get that in the textbooks. So I assume they do that. And when they do that, somebody obviously is doing that work and is getting paid for that. Um, the, uh, is, so I guess, the, I guess my question is, I, and I'm incredibly naive when it comes to this, I don't know who's writing these books, but if, if all of this stuff went completely electronic, and they don't have a good way to stop this stuff from being pirated in some way. And by the way, the only reason students want to pirate textbooks is because they got to get a textbook for class. They don't do it because they can't wait to get the latest textbook. You know what I mean? So it doesn't seem like the problem is so much in, in the students. It's a cost problem. So maybe there's just a way to get costs way down so that electronic textbooks are super cheap. So if I want to get the latest book for my you know, uh, Physiology 2 class, it's five bucks. Everybody can afford that. That drives down the need to pirate. And, but, but then again, again, I don't know who gets paid for this and how much they need to make a good textbook every year. There are generally now about, I would say, in, in the province of Ontario and in probably most of North America, there's probably about four or five major publishers that provide most of the hardbound textbooks to almost everyone. Like when you're talking about science curriculum, I mean, I'm thinking of publishers like Thompson, uh, Macmillan, McGraw-Hill. There are some really, really big ones that, that provide these kind of, you know, omnibus books from grade nine all the way up to grade 12. And all of this stuff kind of goes out on a regular basis. And my fear is that, I mean, right now it's bad enough that when a textbook gets published, it's already probably five years out of date because essentially they crowdsource and they pay educators to go out and do the research and put together 
the curriculum itself, to put together lesson plans, to do all of this stuff, and they will pay people to do it. And by the time they publish it and put it all together, it could literally take a year or two, and you may still be buying that book five years down the road. We have an ability here to actually go to a bit more of an open source model that we could maybe filter a bit, make it a bit more reliable than a general web page, and wouldn't cost anything whatsoever. Uh, but for that to happen, the textbook lobby, which is more powerful than you think, or the publisher lobby, which is more powerful than you think, would actually have to give up all those profits, and I don't think they're willing to do that anytime soon. So it is, it's, it's all about the money, that's for sure. Neil, do you think there's any chance that, uh, you know, from an outside perspective, outside of education, I assume... I assume I'm a teacher. You, oh, you're also a teacher. Yeah, high school teacher. Oh, well, th then I throw that assumption out. What do you, what do you think? <laughs> do, do, are we out of hope, as Anthony says? I mean, are we going to not be able to move to the benefits of the Internet? I mean, if you look at Wikipedia, Wikipedia's got all kinds of problems, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, there, there are things that they deal with. But really, for the most part, it works really well. If you could take something like Wikipedia to create textbooks and then run them through sort of a vetting pro process before they're used in the classroom, that, that, that's what Anthony's talking about with open source textbooks. Do you, is there any hope there? There could be. Um, I think a lot of it is going to depend on a bunch of other industries, too. I mean, there's, there's the actual textbook fabrication part of it, which is going to be done by publishers, but then there's the distribution model that's going to be used, and I think that that's something that oftentimes gets overlooked. Um, right now, the textbook publishers kind of have a direct link, at least here in the United States, to the school districts. And they uh, it's kind of almost the same way you'd think of like pharmaceutical reps kind of going directly to hospitals and to doctors trying to get them to buy whatever pharmaceutical it is that they're trying to sell. Textbook people do the same thing. They go to the schools, um, they give samples to teachers, to administrators, um, to curriculum development sorts of people and you know kind of open a dialogue between them but then when it's time to buy the uh, school district is buying directly from those publishers and they're not going through a kind of like a, a middleman like amazon.com or something like that uh, now i've kind of watched what amazon has been doing with their their model for digital distribution of text related materials and i kind of think that they're very thirsty right now to um connect to, to basically grow their customer base and they've actually, at points, kind of uh, charged less. You know, they just opted not to make a profit in order to offer products at a cheaper price. They don't do that all the time, obviously, but they have done it. And I can kind of see them doing that for textbooks and also then trying to get the school districts to buy something like a, a equivalent of an education-based Kindle, you know, that will serve up all the material. And then one of the perks that they could offer is, and if you buy the hardware from us, you will be getting the source sources for the hardware, the content that you'll be using as you teach uh, at a cheaper rate than you would if you went directly to the publisher because we're Amazon.com and we can afford to do that kind of a thing. I think that could be a possibility. Um, in addition to that, there's a lot of companies that are popping out here that are trying to uh, really grab the e-learning market. Uh, one is this company called Education 2020. Another one is called Novanet. Another one is called Play-Doh. Those are three that, that I can think of right off the top of my head. And uh, they're really trying to, to do to basically take content and serve it up in a way where it's uh, kind of like a textbook but with a lot of other material kind of embedded into it. And as an educator, what I'm able to do, because I've worked with, with all three of these systems at one point or at time or another, you're able to kind of uh, go in and put in your own homework. And you could use things like Wikipedia. You could use um, other books. Uh, you could use Project Gutenberg texts. You could use a bunch of other things and kind of make assignments based around those and embed those assignments into the curriculum which has already been kind of aligned to the state and national standards that teachers need to adhere to. So I think it's a possibility 
to answer your question, that yeah, that, that could happen in the future. Um, and I think that, that there will be some pretty dedicated teachers that would like to see that happen in the future as well. And I think it's kind of interesting that we're already we're not already living in a time where all the curriculum isn't already available online because in a very real way it kind of is. My my kids who are in junior high have one in high school. They come home, and most of what they're doing for class they're doing on the internet, and they're using resources that you could call not necessarily the most reliable. And taking out the fact there's you know there's uh, uh, economic reasons why a certain segment of the society won't have access to the internet in the same way and that sort of thing. I know that that's a significant thing, and we should. It has to be considered in this equation, but it seems odd to me that we're even looking at books anymore, that it's not more pervasive online, that the entire curriculum can't be accessed that way, because in a very real everyday way, it kind of is being being done that way. So I don't know. It's, it's fascinating that, yeah. that, that we think of this as a future thing when it seems like we kind of have the tools now, or at least the basic tools to get going. And Anthony, we before we get over to, to Neil for his prediction, one last thing. Do you think that the budget crunch will be able to outweigh the lobbying if it becomes so much cheaper to use electronic text and, and open source text? Could, could that swing it the other way? I hope so. I really hope so. Because that's, if there's one thing that I would hope for, for public education right now is, yes, you could save a whole bunch of money. Yes, you could update things on the fly. I mean, history, <laughs> history changes on a day-to-day -day basis now. And the ability for students to learn that change is probably more important than the facts themselves, the ability to stay up to date. And you're not going to get that out of textbooks. And it's really, it's really analogous to the music model. The textbook publishers haven't figured out how to monetize the e-text yet perfectly. They've got small ways to do it, uh, but they haven't quite figured out that full model yet. So um, that's why they're still pushing for the old model. And that's why they still think you have to have the authorities. And ultimately, the authorities that they're getting to write these things are the teachers who are in the classrooms anyway. And sometimes you'll get some doctors and sometimes you get university professors. But ultimately, it's the same people who are delivering the curriculum that are writing the textbooks and could provide information on a day-to-day -day basis. So I hope that electronic, I hope that the cost overweighs the lobby and that ultimately you will have people who will um, who will have cheaper access to whatever kind of resources they want to. And uh, to, uh, to me, free is better. Free and open is far better. All right, let's move over to you, Neil. Short-term prediction, something you think will happen maybe in the next few years. What do you got for us? Okay, uh, this is, uh, I'm going to try to combine some other things that we've talked about into this prediction. Um, talking about uh, the, the students that I teach are kids who are kind of underserved, typically. They're, they're from very poor neighborhoods um, in the city of Chicago. And so they're, they're dealing with a lot of the kind of social problems that would exist in those kinds of neighborhoods where there's not a lot of jobs, there's just not a lot of um, companies kind of coming in there trying to create jobs, so on and so forth. And uh, the idea about uh, transportation and the kind of the need for a high-speed rail network kind of connecting a bunch of different places across the country. And one of the, the poorer neighborhoods in Chicago, Inglewood is what it's called, um, there's a bunch of vacant real estate. And a company has decided to buy up this vacant real estate. And what they've done is they've taken these buildings, which have a lot of vertical space, and turned them into hydroponic farms. And what you're getting then is uh, people growing food inside of a city and then taking that food and selling it inside of the city as well. And this kind of obviously is going to make a lot of economic sense because you don't have to transport the food from point A to point B. Uh, so you save transportation costs. Uh, the way that the food is being produced is kind of uh, a little bit more under the microscope. They aren't worrying about certain things that they are worrying about in more traditional settings. And uh, it seems as though it's, it's really, really taking off right now. The people who invested money in this project seem to be making a lot more money, and there's a lot more interest in it. 
Uh, there's a lot of cities all over the United States and Canada, I assume, that used to have you know thriving industrial corridors where they and, and those as industry has kind of gone down and, and United States and Canada have transitioned from more of a production economy to a service-based economy those spaces have become vacant and uh, there's nothing stopping people who have the the money and the inclination to take that space and turn it into these kinds of like hydroponic farms that will produce food which is needed and uh, then kind of get it to the people without necessarily having the cost of transporting it from the farms to the to the cities where most of the consumers are going to be I love this idea. So if you, it seems like well, the two scariest movies I saw last year was Food Inc. and King of Corn. And they scared the crap out of me because the way we do food now, at least in this country and to a large extent this continent, is kind of ridiculous. Um, the kind of food we, we bring in overseas that we could just as easily manufacture here because of cost concerns just seems crazy to me and also our our inability to sort of source our own our own food every day seems like a really bad trend for us to get into this seems like a great way to um, to sort of curb that do you feel like it's more appropriate to one like you're in illinois how how would this work in say uh, a, a city or, or an area with a lot of sort of um I don't know, with a lot of reach like Chicago, what does, does Chicago have a, have, a, have a future in making their own food, helping their own people make their own food, and even building an industry around it where, you know, jobs well, I was, are I was thinking and, of Detroit, even, yeah, where Detroit's you've got yeah, a lot too, yeah. of, of arable urban land. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, I think that there is a, a big future in this thing, and the biggest reason I think that is because there's an economic opportunity that exists. Uh, people who, uh, you know, are, are investing in this kind of uh, production are going to be creating jobs and so there's going to be a lot of tax incentives for them to do that uh, and they're going to be making a product which is food I mean unlike like so many other products that people consume like like music movies uh, books food can't be digitized it's something that people are going to need and uh, they're always going to need it you know so and when you're, you're producing the food in this manner they're, they're producing good food that's one of the cool things about it now not all of it is made for human consumption a lot of it is made to go into things like animal feed later on and, and it kind of gets shipped out of the city which doesn't make a whole lot of sense, but that's one of the ways that they're doing it. But the, the point I'm trying to make here is that there's money to be made in this industry. And since there is money to be made, I would expect that cities like Chicago, like Detroit, um, like Baltimore, you know what I mean, which used to have a, a real big uh, shipping industry, but as, you know, getting things off of boats and onto land has become more and more mechanized, uh, that th those jobs have kind of dried up. But there's, there's still a lot of warehouses. There's just a lot of space which is sitting there. And it's, it's blight. Um, you know, politicians are going to be, I think, incentivized to take this kind of thing and, and run with it. Uh, people who live in the cities are going to be incentivized to take this thing and run with it. Consumers are going to be wanting to get their, their food and have it be good food and have it be at a cheap cost. So I think they're going to run with it. And uh, the only people who I can see kind of rebelling against it are going to be people who have this sort of like reactionary idea of, wait a minute, this, is, this, this isn't natural and I, and I don't like it. Um, one of the things you brought up earlier was how so much food doesn't get grown in the United States. I, I have a tea company. I sell high-quality loose-leaf tea, and I have to import all of my tea from other places because we don't grow tea in the United States except for in Hawaii. And uh, it's extremely expensive to import tea from Hawaii because the cost of labor is so expensive there. So if, if there's a hydroponic farm growing tea in the United States, that would be something that I would definitely be interested in buying, just one for the novelty and two because it would probably cost me a lot less money. And if it was good tea, I'd sell it. 
So, uh, yeah, I, I think there's a huge opportunity here for a lot of different people, consumers, business people, et cetera. Anthony, what's the Canadian perspective on stuff like this? Do you guys, uh, do you guys have a, is there a big push in Canada to figure out ways to, to be more self-sufficient, you know, import less, that sort of thing? Could you reclaim Olympic Stadium by just turning it into a farmland? <laughs> it's, uh, it, it's divided, and it's divided probably among a lot of the same concerns as in the U.S., that to start off something like this, uh, I love the idea. I love the idea of eating locally, you know, the idea of having everything that's grown within, a, you know, you buy produce and things that are, that are grown within 100 miles of you, and I know that's not possible in necessarily all climates, but the concept, uh, the city that I'm in right now, Hamilton, was essentially the Pittsburgh of Canada. I mean, we were a steel town, and we've lost one of our two major mills here, and so manufacturing jobs have really taken a hard hit, and I, I love this idea. The problem is, I think the risk to startup whether it's private or whether it's private that's going to be subsidized by the government, is going to take a lot of courage. Uh, it's going to take courage for a company to take that risk. And beyond that, it's going to take courage if a government's going to help subsidize this. And it makes complete sense to me. But if a government's going to subsidize this and they're going to say, we're going to take this many billions in tax dollars to subsidize this industry, a lot of people who can now go down, who are used to in the middle of winter in Canada, going down and buying oranges for cheap, which you would never grow around here, people are used to doing that because we're importing them for so cheap from overseas. Uh, it's going to be a tough sell on people who can say, why would I want to do this when I could simply you know, go down to the store and buy this for a lot cheaper than it's going to take to grow it. I like the idea, but I think it's going to be a hard sell on them, and it's going to be a hard sell if someone says we're going to have to raise your taxes to do it. I, I think uh, skyscraper grown as a label on food would, would be kind of uh, <laughs> fantastic. And, I, and there's another uh, th thought I had regarding food shortages, where a lot of countries are complaining that arable land is being used to grow biofuels when it should be used to grow food, because in some countries we're actually having food shortages where we have the capacity to feed the world. So any... Other ways we can grow food, I think, is, is, a, uh, is an important thing uh, for the world to do. Let's, uh, let's move over to our long-term predictions. And, Neil, we'll stick with you. These are the more in 100 years will be made of cheese sort of things or something mm -hmm. like that. Uh, I hope I didn't steal your prediction. What is it? Um, all right. Well, I was, uh, this kind of goes back to what Anthony was talking about with textbooks uh, in a way because it has to do with the publishing industry. Uh, I was listening to the episode of Forecast before this one, and you guys were talking about uh, basically computers taking a bunch of information of, of, of people acting, right, and kind of like the way that they move, the right, way they, right. they gesticulate, so on and so forth, and kind of building up this massive library that the that computers could then pull from and create a render, a complete digital performance of somebody who's no longer around, like, know, like Gene Kelly or something like that, and just have it be completely virtualized. And I got to thinking about that a little bit, and um, I'm thinking it wouldn't be too far-fetched to think that within 100 years, uh, literary publishing companies could basically say to a computer, all right, we're looking for you know, the next um, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, or we're looking for the next Stephen King, or we're looking for the next you know, whatever. Um, or maybe they want to mix and match a little bit. Maybe they want 10% Stephen King, and they want 30% uh, you know, somebody else, so on and so forth. And they basically tell the computer that, and everybody who is an aspiring writer will have submitted their manuscripts to the publishing company in a digital format. The computer will scan these digital documents and then kind of find similarities that have been preset by the, the people looking to make money. 
and it will spit back, you know, a couple of results, maybe a dozen, you know, out of, out of the thousands of submissions that we have received, here's a dozen that seem to match the writing style or the thematic style um, that you have put forward. And uh, maybe it'll go to people at that point in time and they'll kind of double check what the computers do, or maybe it will be just completely computerized and they won't need people to do that at all. Wow. So, yeah, so we talked about, you know, flesh and blood actors being replaced by digital counterparts. Never really occurred to me that the writing, I mean, there's a whole, there's a whole bunch of other credits in movies that, that computers could probably hop in and take care of. Um, how do you feel it would, it would impact the sort of specialness of having a Stephen King book in your hand and knowing it was Stephen King or, or knowing that Song of Ice and Fire 15 wasn't written by George R.R. R. Martin because he's passed away so many years ago, but by a computer that's been trained to sort of match his style. What do we lose in that translation? Do we lose anything? Do we get over that? Oh, I, I think we definitely lose something. Um, and I, I'm not even saying that the computers will take over the writing. I'm saying that people will continue to write the manuscripts, then they'll submit them to the publishing houses in a digital format, and a computer will scan those human-created documents and try to find something which most matches up with George R.R. R. Martin's style. And once it finds those things, it will it'll kick those results out and be like, all right. So this this basically saves people the the uh, uh, I don't know if I want to use the word saves, but it, it it's a way to possibly streamline the uh, the the way that this works. Because I'm I know somebody who works in publishing now, and they talk about just how much stuff they receive on a daily basis. I mean, there are thousands and thousands and thousands of people of of all sorts of ages, ranging you know from from high school to you know well into their 60s and 70s submitting documents, manuscripts, to these publishing houses saying, you know, please publish my work. And uh, there's people reading all of them right now. And they, uh, they, they basically find something they like, and then they, they, they talk about it. And I'm wondering if maybe that, if, if computers could scan those, those thousands and thousands of documents that they're receiving on a daily basis and kind of whittle it down to the stuff which the publishing company has kind of preset is, is what they want, that that might... I don't know if that'll mean that we're going to be getting better literature or if we're going to be getting uh, not as good literature. I'm really not sure. I think it would depend on, on the quality of the AI. But that's kind of the prediction is that at well, some point in time, writers will still write, not computers writing. But that's oh, kind gotcha. of a fun idea, too. Well, what if you have the AI just looking for the next hit? It's not even just like, oh, I need another fantasy that's Martin-like. You say, look for stuff that, you know, you go out and, and search social networks for the mood of the people and then determine what stuff we've got in the database that will, will fit the mood right now and sell the best and, and publish it right away. Yeah, I think that could happen. Um, it, it's a distinct possibility. Um, I'm, I, it's weird, though. I'm a little surprised it's not already happening in a way. Like, that seems like some of that crowdsourcing you could do now. I don't know how good we'd be at it, but it seems like you could scour the... It's all about the, the algorithm, right? Yeah. yeah, and just say, oh, look, at these guys are all talking about this self-published thing that no one's heard of. And it's got more groundswell than we ever got for the, you know, the next whatever book. Let's bring him in here and at least look at the manuscript. It seems like they could cut down a lot of those costs. Maybe this is a, a great way of augmenting uh, the losses they're taking now as publishers because people are moving away from the printed medium. If that continues to be stronger and stronger, and I know this is a further out prediction, but it seems like this, is, this would be a great way for them to sort of, you know, get the wheat from the chaff a little bit better so that they're not spending so many man hours and so much time and so much money trying to determine who's the next Stephen King. I like yeah. that idea a lot. Yeah, and I, your idea about the computers just actually, you know, writing the next Stephen King book because he's no longer around to do it, that's, yeah. that's kind of fascinating to me, too. I mean, if you could have An author a never computer dies. 
Yeah, yeah, look at all the stuff that Mark Twain wrote, all of his letters and all of his, his stuff published and unpublished, finished and unfinished, and just kind of like really crunch it and then kind of come up with uh, what it thinks is something that would be written in that same style. You know, I don't know. That could be interesting. All right, Anthony, we've, we've got uh, computer database book matching writer, writer you know, computer-generated writers as uh, one long-term prediction. What do you got when you look in the, uh, the flying car direction of things long-term? Okay, well, another one of my interests is music. I've been playing piano since I was five years old, and so I went into music vein this time. And I'm thinking this kind of evolution of the arts of what we're talking about over the last couple minutes anyway. So I think that within 100 years we will be able to perform concert quality music with mind synthesizers, which will include jamming with other people on stage. So in other words, I have the guitar headset on and we will actually be able to think what we are going to do. And then the most talented people will actually be able to, and I'm, I'm patent pending this word, thought score, uh, entire concerts in front of you playing multiple different parts in their mind and actually direct it to what instrument they want to go to. And you'll be able to go to a club and, well, I don't know how exciting it'll be, we'll see people sitting there doing it, or you can watch it online or you can listen to it. And strictly through the power of the mind and through the technology that evolves to actually give us real sounding instruments, um, or let's say traditional analog acoustic instruments, uh, people will be able to think no, I mean, I know people can do this in a certain way now. They've got algorithms which allow people to make beeps and boops on the computers, and you hear what sounds like 8-bit compositions, and that's very cool. That's kind of a first stage. But uh, concert quality to where you could tell the difference between someone actually playing it or actually thinking a phrase being thought out in their head. And the, abil the exciting part to me would be people who don't have the ability to play a musical instrument uh, who got, could actually sit on stage with, e with each other and essentially jam out playing different different instruments so that's my hundred year prediction I like this one uh, this show we tend to get a little bogged down in the idea that the future will be all automated and robots will do all these things we do for now and they'll do it all for us and eventually they'll become self-aware and it kind of just goes from there this hey, is that interesting was because you, that was you it's your fault we went that way at the last <laughs> prediction I know it's true but what I what I like about this prediction is that it's 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 out there it's a hundred years away and that's good that fits that criteria but it's still kind of a skill-based thing. Like, you, you're going to go to a concert to see a certain performer because he's really good at making music with his mind. Not that that's some, now we can all just do it and everyone's good at it. He still has to have the, the talent, the skill, the years of practice, the years of performing to be able to really do an amazing brain-based performance on stage. There's something about that that's very appealing to me. It still, still lets us have the individuality and kind of the genius up there and not just this automated, you know, automaton future. I like that. And I'm intrigued by this idea of involving the audience somehow so that every performance could be truly unique. Uh, yeah. and, 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 and Anthony, like you said, you know, you could, you could tap in and watch it on, online, but if, if somehow, I'm, I'm thinking of, uh, Anthony gave a talk at PAB 2011 uh, where he, he, at one part he described this moment in, uh, was it Fish? Was it a fish concert yeah, that you're describing? The, the band, the band Fish. Yeah, and that's gonna probably that's gonna probably either get me loved or reviled by most of the people in the chat room right now. Don't try <laughs> try not to think about what you think of the band. But the the, the point of this <laughs> is is that at one point they the the band stops and kind of waits for the audience reaction until they feel the right moment to get going. I'm seeing this as sort of that interaction blown up large, where the audience is constantly feeding back. To, to guide the performance along. 
I think what may even be cooler, and I've, I've, when I was thinking about this after I kind of wrote it, the original prediction was the, uh, the visual part of it. Uh, sure, you could have somebody who is, you could have an artist putting a headset on and essentially creating the visuals for the music on the fly as the music is being played. Or in a small enough setting, I mean, you could be sitting around in a basement and instead of having a video game console, you essentially have this, you know, mind band in a box kind of thing and you put it all in your head and you have somebody in the room who can actually create the visuals while the music is being played as well. So somebody who has that proclivity for that artistic sensibility might not be thinking music when they hear music, but they might actually be thinking visuals. And I think there's a great harmony in that too, um, because, I mean, let's face it, when you go and watch a concert, if you had four people standing on stage thinking, uh, that might not be the most exciting visual, but think about what you could actually produce if you would have a way to project what somebody's thinking at the same time. This is a Futurama episode, Tom. I've seen this one. Holophoner. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And it's one of my favorites. Totally. Ring, this is all ringing good. Absolutely. <laughs> We're headed in the right direction. Yeah. All right, let's take a uh, quick break before we move on to the crazy-ass predictions and have some, some real fun. Squarespace.com is our sponsor today, and uh, you can see them in action by going to forecastpodcast.com, Scott. We yes, use them. In fact, I just renewed them for another year because it's so freaking easy to use. It's, uh, I, I am horrible. I, I have to apologize at updating the Forecast website. I, I usually do like two weeks at once, and that's because... I'm lazy. It takes me, I, will, I kid you not, it takes me less than five minutes to put up a new forecast episode in Squarespace. It's so damned yeah, easy. It literally tells people how lazy you are because I know. it's so it's, it's making me look simple. bad. Anybody can do it. But I, you know what I like about it the best, though? It's not that everyone can do it because they can. It's that even guys that are super CSS nerds and want to have all the control they want, they can do it, too. That's what separates Squarespace for me. That's what makes it uh, awesome. And you can try to sign up for a free trial right now. If you don't believe me, you don't have to. Squarespace.com. You can import your current blog that, from almost every blog uh, account out there. Sign up for a free account. You don't need to give them your credit card. You're not committing. They know that you know, you're know you careful with your where you place your credit card data these days. Uh, so sign up for the account. Try it out. Start building your website. If you do decide to purchase it, well, you don't have to give them a credit card at that point because you've got to pay for it. But you can save 10% off for six months by using the offer code FORECAST7. That's F-O-U-R-C-A-S-T-7. Make a website for yourself, for somebody else. If you're like Anthony and you've got 16 million podcasts, you can make websites for all of them. Squarespace.com. We thank them for their support of Forecast. And Anthony, we're going to stick with you to start with the crazy-ass predictions. One really far out there forecast. What do you got for us? Okay, so this one, I tried not to go robots because I saw the last episode and I saw there was a lot of robots there. So, however, this doesn't involve technology. <laughs> We're not anti-robot, but you're right. I we know. do get a lot of robots. So, okay. I figure yeah, we'll, mix it, we we'll mix it up a yeah, little bit. Yeah. So, so the idea is that uh, in the future, in the way off distant future, spirituality will start to become redefined through technological advancements where the deity will actually be the technology and the creator of the technology will be seen as the equivalent of a prophet. In other words, the tool becomes more important than the process itself. In other words, and Apple. <laughs> <laughs> yes, well, and, and the evolution, although I would say that at this point, probably the creator is, is deified more than the actual product is, to a certain degree, it, with Apple. So I, in I your prediction, it would, we'd flip that around. Exactly. We flipped that around. And so you would see the creators as ancillary to the technology and that the 
quote unquote staying power of the technology. So something that lasts for like 50 or 100 years and becomes a benchmark technology kind of has a greater stance in the pantheon, so to speak. So we kind of remember that piece of technology with reverence more than anything else. And I think a lot of this is going to happen because I think we're seeing right now organized religion over the past 100 years, 200 years has started to disassemble in many places. And, and you're not seeing as much adherence. You're seeing uh, factions that are still very loyal to what they believe in. But you're also seeing the rise of atheism and agnosticism. And we're seeing people who don't want to necessarily be affiliated with organized religion. But I think people always want to have faith or be tied to something. And uh, if they're not necessarily going to find that in just being human and looking around at other people on the earth, then I think technology for some of them is going to be this kind of big beyond where uh, maybe not necessarily worshipped as being prayed to or anything like that, but looked at with in a sense of reverence uh, far more than it is right now. And it will actually take the place of what we call organized religion. Well, you could see, I mean, you could see a future where, where technology becomes so pervasive and becomes such a, um, uh, maybe a life-giving force, a thing that, that we depend on so much to exist and maybe has taken on its own uh, level of self-awareness to the point that it's making, quote-unquote, decisions that affect our daily lives. That, and, and having us in its palm like that, regardless of, you know, whether uh, a man created it at one point or not, is very, uh, it's a very godlike scenario, right? So it seems to me that you would be able to create that same, you know, the, the same sort of sense of religion, like a, a fear of God, as, as it were, would maybe, you know, start to come out from people and you'd start to, to fear this, this terrible force that could destroy us any minute, but decides to be benevolent and take care of us. And it's like a bad episode of TNG first season or something, but you can <laughs> see, you know, I, I could totally see this happening. Um, Neil, do you, how do you feel about the, the future of super robot gods and they're they're ruling over us. Do you accept our, uh, our, our future overlords? <laughs> uh, you know, I I'm thinking about it. I'm I'm not sure. It's just it's kinda kicking around in my, my head right now. But um I think that people will I can see people tying spirituality to technology in the future as, as that being something that, that really does grow, especially as uh, technology kinda becomes better at exploring like the, the space inside of a, a person's skull, uh, which is something that we're pretty limited at right now. Uh, but you know, there's, there's all these studies about the, the ways like people are taking brain scans will people pray or meditate or do whatever they do spiritually. And um, I can see uh, the, the various kind of like denominations sort of uh, welcoming technology into the way that they do things and that having a profound effect on the way that they do things and the way that uh, people kind of like identify with the various faiths of the world. Yeah, it's, I, it, it, it could go a couple of different ways, right? It could go like a cargo cult where you sort of you, you have this technology that advances so fast that we lose the ability to appreciate the fact that it is made by humans. And that could become uh, that could be some sort of singularity type situation, some sort of AI mm -hmm. sort of situation, uh, and and people start to branch off and worship it because it is so inexplicable and unknowable. And that that's usually a key for any kind of religious belief is that it is not entirely understandable. It's not entirely explainable. Right. right. It's it that's otherwise it wouldn't be a god. Uh, and, and I could see technology going that way, but it's interesting what you're bringing up, which is technology sort of infuses itself into the current religions mm -hmm. uh, and, and starts to replace elements of them. Anthony, does that, how does that fit back into your prediction? 
it, I think it fits pretty well, and I think it. I mean, I'll never forget the first. I mean, I was I was raised a Catholic. I'm not a Catholic anymore, but I don't know anyone who was Catholic remembers during the 1970s, maybe early 80s, the first time that they let somebody in with an electric guitar to do a hymn one day, and everyone thought it was the most shocking thing in the world. And it's like they brought an electric guitar in to do a hymn in a Catholic church. This is absolutely amazing. Shoot, an um, acoustic guitar was big in arc. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> um, so so that idea of technology. I mean, let's a lot of churches right now. Now, they have websites. They have Twitter accounts. They they are they are jumping online. And the Pope and are... just issued a cyclical about social networking. <laughs> exactly. And and to me, this is uh, a lit. I mean, when Scott brought up the idea of of fear and and that fear of technology, I wasn't thinking it from that. I, I could see that happening as well. But I was thinking at it just more from a more passive reverence, like that idea that you know this is just so amazing. And it's you're right. The idea that it's not understandable. We tend to deify those things which we don't understand, and I think we've always done that. And so as the technology becomes further and further from our grasp, and maybe that's because of technology recreating itself and moving on to the next advancement and humans being less and less of the equation, I think you're going to see that, that deity factor kind of ramp up a little bit. So I think it fits very well. All right, well, let's move over to you, Neil. Uh, Crazy-ass prediction, one really far out there, off the wall, or incredibly meaningful and significant like Anthony's was. What do you got? Um, well, my original one I had, I had two here was that Neil Gorman will go on a successful date um, for my crazy-ass prediction. Somebody but, take uh, Neil on a date, for God's sake, yeah, I'm, I'm not good at that. Uh, but anyways, uh, the, the one that I'm going to go with here is that uh, Corey Doctorow. This is, this is really good because Anthony's here, and he's Canadian, and so is Cory Doctorow. Mm. Cory Doctorow will use his, his powers as um, king of the Internet, and uh, he will become you know, a party leader, probably of the New Democrats or something like that, and uh, then will continue to use those powers during a general election and will become the Prime Minister of Canada. And when he becomes Prime Minister of Canada, Canada will become one of the most technologically advanced, forward-thinking nations on the planet. Wow. <laughs> You've, awesome. you've broken Scott's brain. <laughs> I don't know how to respond to that. <laughs> wow. I think I, uh, I think Corey, I think Corey Doctor will sell a book on that first, though, online. I, yeah, I think he'll write well, yeah. a book about it first and sell it online. Well, that's the way Today, it works. Yeah. yeah. Today's episode is very Cory Doctorow generally, don't you guys think? I mean, there's a real vibe, uh, real, uh, I'm feeling anyway, a real Cory Doctorow vibe, the way he approaches his stories and, and, and his fiction. Um, a lot of these predictions sort of fit right in with that. So I think this is entirely appropriate. Why not? I think he'd be a fine prime minister. I don't know what prime ministers do in Canada because I'm an American, but uh, <laughs> I'm sure it's all good work and, and uh, it doesn't seem that crazy ass to me. I like Corey. Yeah. I, I always liked Corey Doctorow because uh, his predictions for the future are always, uh, it's not like, you know, dystopian where the, the robots take over and are, you know, kicking all the dogs and stealing all the stuff and human beings, uh, you need need to shave because they're out of razors. It's it's a really bright future that he kind of paints, and it's a believably bright future too, where he talks about good things happening, um, and kind of like about the the potential that people have to kind of like uh, look forward to the future. And I've always liked that about him. So I think he would would probably be very good in politics if he could kind of channel that same way of uh, interacting with people. Anthony, well, will, seem, you, will you accept does, Corey as your new prime minister? <laughs> I would gladly accept Corey as my new prime minister. The trouble is, I believe he's too smart to want to be prime minister. <laughs> I think I don't think he would want to enter organized politics. That's um, usually true of anyone you would trust with any kind of office like that. <laughs> so, so I think uh, I mean I, I love a lot of his work, and uh, I think 
although I think he's, you know, as speaking as a Canadian, he's spending way too much time in England right now, but that's okay. It's a Commonwealth country. We'll give him his due. And he seems to be enjoying himself over there. But if, if he were to come back, I would, I would gladly go all hell Cory Doctorow. I got I gotta just a it's side crazy-ass prediction about Cory Doctorow that he has the potential of all working um, both. He's kind of a tech evangelist, but he's also an author and a very creative guy. I, th I feel like of, of all the authors I can think of right now working today, he has the most chance of becoming kind of the next L. Ron Hubbard-ish kind of guy. Now, for, before people yell at me for this, what? I'm just saying, you're talking about this whole... He's going to start a religion on a side bet with Robert well, Heinlein? It's, it's kind of connected with the, other, with the other prediction about religion and technology. He has the ability to come up with ideas that people glom onto so closely that they could, I, I'm just saying, crazy ass, right? Crazy ass, we're made of cheese. I'm just saying it's possible that people Hail would Zinu. see him as this, Right, he's the next guy that, that provided all this stuff, and now we go, oh, wait, he is, he's connected to the great something or other, and, and he becomes the next sort of Scientology fad. Crazy ass, I know, crazy ass. Let's I'll make that clear. Yeah, just, you don't want Corey to be insulted by this. <laughs> no, 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 I don't. I really don't. I anyway. think I know what you're going at after, but I don't think I, I like what Anthony said about it, I, I don't think he'd ever want to be prime minister. I don't think he would want to be like L. Ron Hubbard. <laughs> no, he wouldn't. We all know that he wouldn't, and that's yeah. why it's crazy ass. Just want to make I'm it very fairly clear. certain that that's true. Actually. This is a, this is the part of the show where we make ridiculous predictions, despite the right. actually pretty good predictions. You guys both made. And there yeah, goes our chances did. of getting Cory Doctor on the show. That's right. <laughs> All right. Well, let's save ourselves, Scott, with some four questions, shall we? Four questions. That's where we ask our guests four questions, as you might have guessed. Uh, a real rapid fire style. They're not allowed to think about it too much. They have to answer from the gut. Neil, I'm asking you my questions. Are you sitting comfortably, sir? I am. All right. Here we go. What household product will be discovered next to be the ultimate alternative fuel source? Windex. Perfect. That is the correct answer. The blue stuff, not the green. Uh, when you find your bones a thousand years from now, or when they find your bones a thousand years from now, what do you hope they glean from studying them? Uh, anything. That T extended your life 50 years more than anyone else. Uh, what animal do you hope we never learn how to milk? River otters. <laughs> You're good at this game. All I right. don't know, man. Those river otters, they got some good milk. Yuck. Uh, and then finally, what current-day author would you like to see write your official biography one day in the future? Cory Doctorow. <laughs> well, of course. <laughs> that seems quite obvious. The, the prime nice minister. job. Prime we, always say, we always say people do a good job or that they passed the test. You really actually did a good job and passed this test. <laughs> We're just bold yeah. with them. I'm blown away. Forget those people. <laughs> you, sir. Finally did. All right, Anthony. Uh, now, now the pressure's I on. I know, exactly. Now you're set up. Uh, question number one. First of all, are you sitting comfortably? I am. Good, then we'll begin. Question number one. Will people ever camp on the moon? Yes, they will. And, and where, where and how will they camp? Then? Uh, they, will, they will put up tents that are airtight, feed oxygen into them, and uh, it may not happen for quite a while now. Uh, but it will happen because rich people will like to do it. And you'll get there in your old jalopy rocket. Like Chet from the Hardy Boys? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Question number two. What kind of new meat flavors can we expect from test tube meat? 
Panda. Mmm, delicious panda. You're right, because who doesn't want to taste panda? I mean, really, just, just mm. amongst the four of us. Well, there's I mean, there's I don't want to kill a panda. Yeah, <laughs> but I'm curious, right? I'm a vegetarian. Could grow. But you would be able to eat a test tube panda. It wouldn't kill a panda. <laughs> See, no, it's no. not. It's just it's just growing out of out of whole cloth. That's it's the panda delicious. <laughs> panda Express, whole new. Exactly. I thought that's what I was. I thought that's what I was getting there. <laughs> All right, question number three. When will Canada finally rule the world? Wow, is that one of our crazy out there predictions? Sure. Uh, probably, probably when it bands together with the Commonwealth NATO Uber continent, which will be fighting off uh, the Sino Industrial Complex. And Cory Doctor was Prime Minister, obviously. <laughs> As uh, benevolent, dic benevolent dictator. That's right. Governor General. Question number four When the aliens come, what is the proper whiskey to serve them? Oh, well, right now, the proper whiskey to serve them is either single-barrel Jack Daniels or, if you want to serve some Woodford Reserve, that works as well. Uh, yes, I'd, I'd, probably, uh, I'd probably keep the bullet for myself and serve the aliens Woodford Reserve because they, it's, it's a very fine whiskey, but, um, <laughs> you know, you want to impress them, and it's a, it's a good choice. But you want to keep something back for yourself. All right, excellent answers. Thank you, Anthony, and thank you, uh, everybody. This is uh, this has been a great episode. Very thick, very thought thoughtful, very thoughtful. Kind episode of the opposite. I'm no, I'm not yeah. going to say that. <laughs> <laughs> Just kidding. Just kidding. No, this has been really good. Uh, Neil, thanks so much uh, for being on the show. Let folks know about Scholars Tea and and where they can find it and what's going on with that. Uh, ScholarsTea.com. Uh, right now, I'm actually, it's a, a lower selection. We're kind of at the harvesting point. A lot of new teas are coming out. So uh, as the month kind of progresses, I'll have a lot more choices up there. You can you can buy tea. All right. It's good. Fantastic. And Anthony, uh, let, I, I specifically want to direct people to Disculture, but, but let them know where they can find that and any of the other stuff you do. Sure. Disculture.com is where you can find the podcast. And if you go to AnthonyMarco.com, it lists all the podcasts that I do. And I'm on Twitter, conveniently enough, at Anthony Marco, just in case uh, the followers want to pop in there, too. Scott Johnson, another successful forecast? I would say one of my favorites. Um, and, I, and I realize it's always dangerous to say this because we have a lot of incredible guests on, but um, you guys were awesome. I think it's because you're teachers. And I just want to say this on the way out the door here. I wish you guys had been my teachers in high school because uh, mine were lame. And that's all I have to say about that. But yeah, oh, great episode. Yeah, I'll, I'll second that. I would have ended up much more successful than I am now if I'd had teachers like you. <laughs> this is that you know this, that's what happens. Don't forget to leave comments at our website forecastpodcast.com or send us an email forecastpodcast at gmail.com. Thanks everybody for watching. We'll see you in the future. Yay! Yeah, that was excellent. Thank you, guys.